0: Our scripture today is from Genesis chapter 43 verses 1 to 10. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain and they had br- that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, "Go again, buy us a little food." But Judah said to him, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. The word of the Lord.
1: God first revealed and entrusted his salvation plan for all of humanity to one family. And most of the book of Genesis is a history that traces that family's existence through four of its generations. Uh, The family of Abraham and Sarah, their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And uh, we're in this masterful telling of the Joseph cycle. Uh, But there's a subplot within the Joseph narrative In the Genesis history. And this is the subplot. Judah's development as a leader. Here in this account. Right here in chapter 43. And if you keep reading into chapter 44. uh, you, You begin to see why the tribe of Judah. Rose to prominence. Amongst the ancient Israelites. It's because their head. Judah the fourth The fourth of Jacob's 12 sons, Judah rose to prominence amongst his brothers. But he didn't rise to prominence by leveraging his strengths for his own benefit. That's what he was used to doing. If you've been with us and you go back and you look earlier in Genesis, you see how he leveraged his strengths earlier in his life in order to benefit and serve himself. Like when he persuaded his brothers, uh, look, instead of killing... Our little brother, Joseph, let's profit from him and sell him into slavery. They listened to Judah when they did that. Uh, Like uh, when Judah selfishly refused to act justly towards his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and then subsequently and unknowingly committed incest with her. Uh, This is a different Judah The Judah you see here in chapter 43 and chapter 44 of Genesis is a man who who begins to leverage his strengths for his family's well-being. Not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the people around him. So I want to open this up to you and ask you a question. What do you think is the criteria for entrusting authority to somebody who has messed up in the past? What do you think? What's the criteria... And you don't have to give me a Bible answer or a Sunday school answer. What's the criteria for entrusting authority to somebody who is messed up in the past? Yeah. They've learned and made changes. And made changes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Repentance. Okay. Repentance. And very similar to what Dan said. Bob says repentance. Yeah. Which Old Testament. What, you know what repentance means in the Old Testament? To literally turn around and go in the exact opposite direction you were walking. And in the New Testament, repentance means a, a changed mind. A new way of thinking. So yeah, change, repentance. Yes, yeah, Stephen. Okay, so the fruit of change. Yeah, yeah. There's even a, an expression in the New Testament, the fruits of repentance. So you're all kind of hovering around each other, Sarah. Ooh. Wow, yeah. Part of that repentance, part of that transformation is making things right with those you have wronged. Excellent. Oversight and accountability that may not have existed previously. Oversight and accountability that may have not previously existed. Do you mean that the individual is under accountability that didn't pre- Okay, so there you see this individual submitting to oversight and accountability. Great. I thought I saw another hand. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, really quick. If, is there somebody else who hasn't? Go for it. Go for it, Bob. Humility. Okay. Humility. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you guys have experienced stuff because those are all really good answers. I think the proof of Judah's maturity was how he served people instead of manipulating them. And I think today it's very fitting, I'll even say it's providential, that on this day when those of you who are members of Deep Run Church will, for the first time, elect your very first leaders to ordain and to serve you, I think it's very fitting that we see in Judah's own testimony, and the interesting thing is when we started the Genesis series last, last winter, I didn't plan for Judah's transformation to fall on this day. But here we are. And I think what you see from Judah's maturity is that the mark of a maturing leader is self-sacrifice. I'm not saying it's the only mark. I'm not saying this works in government and in the school system or in your business. But I'm telling you, biblically speaking, the mark of a maturing leader and maybe the most important mark is self-sacrifice. And as we look at Judah, I want you to consider um, how to recognize maturity in people that you have to basically in trust with authority. Um, I want to talk to you about recognizing their maturity, anticipating more maturity in them, and ultimately submitting to that maturity. So we're going to talk about recognizing maturity, anticipating maturity, and ultimately submitting to maturity. To recognize maturity in other people, especially in a leader... There's a sense in which you really have to observe some type of transformation that has taken place in the past. When the future Israelites, because at some point this family, which is now becoming a clan, is going to be a nation, a political nation, centuries ahead of Judah's time. Uh, when future Israelites would look back uh, to, into their history, they would see in this account... Evidence of a changed man. They looked back into the past and saw, they observed transformation in their history. Uh, Judah brokers an arrangement between his brothers and Jacob. It was kind of an impossible situation. Jacob and his sons were at an impasse. Uh, there's a famine. There's a regional famine. And uh, they, had gone, they had gone down to Egypt to get food. They met their brother Joseph, who they hadn't seen in 20 years. They, they still don't know it's Joseph. He sends them back. Now they're back, they run out of food and time is, time is going on and they're getting, they're about to starve. Uh, and the problem is the brothers know they can't return to Egypt unless they bring little ben, their brother Benjamin along because the man who's selling them grain in Egypt wants to meet their little brother. So they know they can't go back to buy more food unless they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. But here's the thing. Dad, Jacob, who's already, in his mind, lost his favorite wife, lost her first son, Jake, uh, Joseph, Is not he's not about to lose his favorite wife's second son, Benjamin. And so Jacob won't let go of Benjamin, who's by now at least in his 20s. Um. So it's an, it's, we're at an impasse here, but Judah very tactfully challenges his father, very, very logically, respectfully, but directly challenges Jacob and ultimately persuades him. And, and look at what chapter 43 verses 8 and 9 say. Uh, Judah, Judah steps up amongst all the brothers and says to his dad, send the boy with me, okay? Send him with me. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me let, let me bear the blame forever. This is exactly the opposite of what the oldest son, Reuben, did. Do you remember what Reuben said to Jacob earlier on? <laughs> Reuben said, kill my sons. All right, let, let me take. Let me take my brother down with me. I'll protect him, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my own sons. Like, what? And, and, in, a, and in a sense, Jacob basically says, "Sit down, Reuben. Okay, I'll call you." Uh, but Judah Judah just does just the opposite. Judah offers, basically, um, uh, Judah offers himself up, himself, not his kids, himself and his entire family and their welfare he offers it up to Jacob as restitution if he cannot protect his little brother Benjamin and bring him back. Judah's offer is utterly sacrificial. Remember Reuben's trying to get back into Jacob's good graces to get that birthright, that birthright. We already knew the older three are not going to get it, but nobody yet knows who's going to get the birthright of the family. Who's going to inherit the most and take over the family business. We don't know yet. And in that context, Judah is saying, let me bear the blame forever. Meaning I'm willing to give up my, I'm willing to give up vying for the birthright amongst all my brothers. I, I will be the least among them. Dad, if I don't bring my brother back to you safely. So Jacob says, okay, okay. So Judah commits himself to losing everything for the sake of his dad, for the sake of his little brother. And if you keep reading, we're not going to look at it today, but if you keep reading into Gen- the rest of Genesis 43 into Genesis chapter 44, uh, you know that uh, they go back to Egypt. They return to Egypt. Uh, Joseph, they, they don't realize it's, his, it's their brother, uh, but Joseph Devise, devises a scheme to keep Benjamin, to send the rest of the brothers back home and, and keep Benjamin for himself. And we're going to look at that next week, Joseph's part in this story. Uh, but Joseph, and, and from their perspective, it's just you know, basically the secretary of state in the land of Egypt wants to keep our brother and wants to send us home. And, and they know that that's going to kill their father. Their father, is, he's going to die of grief. If they come back and Benjamin is not with them. So Judah, again, steps up and approaches the man of Egypt and tells him the whole story. It's the longest speech in all of Genesis. And he pleads and negotiates and persuades the Egyptian leader. And, and, And in the heart of that speech, in chapter 44, Judah says this to Joseph Please let your servant, meaning let me, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? And next week, we're going to see how Joseph, because that ultimately broke Joseph. And we're going to look at how Joseph responded to those words. But we see here, this is the first instance in the entire Bible of an innocent person Offering to become a substitute for a guilty person. If you you read, you discover Joseph's special cup was found in Benjamin's sack on the return journey. And so even though that was in Benjamin's fault, legally, in the eyes of the Egyptians, Benjamin was guilty of theft. And this is the first instance in the entire Bible of an innocent person saying, I will substitute myself for the guilty one. And so Judah's great descendant, thousands of years later, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lion of Judah would do just the same thing, would substitute himself as as a guilty criminal in the place of others who are actually guilty. The innocent substituted himself for the guilty. The righteous substituted himself for the unrighteous. And what we see here, we just get a glimpse of God's salvation plan. We just get a glimpse of Christianity in Judah's maturing, transforming example. And we see that God cares for his people through the efforts of sacrificial servant leaders. God cares directly for his people, but he cares for them through the efforts of others. You will call them under shepherds of the great shepherd who sacrificially serve and leverage their strengths for the benefit of the people around them. And this is a model for every Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, this transformation that you see taking place in Judah, it is is like a blueprint, blueprint for your life. It's God's development plan for you and especially for our leaders, especially for a leader in Christ's body, in Christ's church. So what we're trying to do is seek to observe what we see right here in Judah, signs of past transformation can you see evidence of transformation in an individual's life recognize past transformation now we got to balance that out with something else though we also have to anticipate future maturity you not only have to observe past maturity but you have to anticipate future maturity by expecting continual transformation Transformation isn't a, I've arrived, I'm done, I've transformed. It's an ongoing active process. So we need to look back to see evidence of change, and we need to anticipate more change, future change. This is what I mean by it. If you can look at an individual and assess their potential, then you need to trust in that potential. If there's potential, you need to trust in further development. So I'll give you a really brief example. Something I never forgot. When I was a senior in high school, uh, I was I was selected to to play the role, the lead role for Fiddler on the Roof, and the director came up to me and said, "So listen, um, you've got the role, but I want to let you know." He went out of his way to tell me this, probably because he knew I was a very arrogant, self righteous snot, and at the time, and and. <laughs> And and he said to me, you know, your understudy, the runner-up, his performance in the in the auditions was as good as yours. And it kind of unsettled me. And he and he said, Yeah, yeah, no, his audition was as good as yours. I gave this role to you because I know what your potential is. So he didn't entrust responsibility to somebody because of what he was seeing in the moment, but because he was aware of not only what he was seeing, but he, was, he made an educated guess about what he would see, about how an individual would develop. And that's what I'm saying. Look, those of you who are older in life or more experienced in whatever, in, in church, right, church leadership or ministry or, or in industry, Maybe you're experienced in in the sense of you've been married for a long time. Whatever it might be. Think about this. Didn't people have to take an educated guess and trust you before you were mature? Before you were as developed as you are now? To put you in that role? I am telling you, if Becky waited for me to be as mature as I am today, and I'm not saying that's saying much, she would have never married me 20 years ago. Didn't somebody take a chance with you Way back when, before you were as wise as you are now, before you were as experienced and tactful, before you had a record at all. Some of the experiences that we are looking for in people, they only come through on the job training. So it is helpful to have some kind of an assessment of past transformation, but it's also important that if you see potential, you trust in that potential. And those two ideas have to balance each other out. Now, you may be saying at this point, well, wait a minute. So if a leader is not yet what they will become, what can I possibly assess? Like, wh- what can I assess and, and, and what should I anticipate? How can I possibly anticipate good things? That's a great question. We should be asking that question. I think Peter gave an answer uh, in First Peter chapter five when he talks about elders and and the church. And he commissions, he, he charges elders to shepherd the church well, like Jesus shepherds his people. And he says to elders, "Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Listen to that, not under compulsion, but willingly." As God would have you. And not for shameful gain. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. But being examples to the flock. Here is what I think should be the key factor. Of potential in an individual. There are many important factors. But I think the key one is this. If you can assess and anticipate a willing spirit. And a servant's heart. That's what you go with. Of course there are other important factors. And and some of you have thought and prayed about it. But I think the essential one. According to what Peter is saying. Is if you can see. That somebody has amongst the gift. Along with the gifts. That somebody has a willing spirit. And a servant's heart. That's all the potential they need. To be what God. Is going to develop in them. And what you will see. Someday if you can assess and anticipate that I think that's a good place to start not saying that's the only thing you have to consider, but everything else has got to be built on top of that. So my encouragement to us is this trust God trust God to work in and to work through the servant leaders that he raises up. You would have never trusted Judah if you sat there and watched him tell His brothers, we're going to sell. We're not going to kill him because we don't want blood on our hands. And he is our family. Let's sell him and profit from it. He would have never trusted Judah. You would have never trusted Judah when you saw how he treated Tamar. But I know you would have trusted the Judah you're reading about right here. Um, Look, if God is sovereign. And if a servant leader is willing, then you can expect Progress, not perfection. You can expect progress. I think we often expect perfection. You know, leadership, specifically in the church now I'm talking, you know, whether leaders are rookies or whether they're veterans, they're not your messiahs. John the Baptist had the right idea when people said, hey, John, are you the messiah? And he said, no, I'm not. I must decrease and he must increase. John chapter 3. Jesus said to his apostles later in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So don't seek in fallen leaders, even the ones that God calls to you, don't seek in fallen leaders what God wants you to find only in his son. There's one good shepherd. You know, when Israel's king, centuries after Judah, uh, when Israel... Did I say when Israel's king? Sorry. When Israel wanted a king, Samuel, their, their leader at the time, their judge, was deeply distraught. Um, they, you know, they wouldn't listen to his advice. They really, really wanted a king. And and in his distress, God spoke to Samuel and said, you can find this in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8... God told the Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And I bring that up to say this. I think that often our impatience with our leaders, our skepticism of them, our own insubordination, our unwillingness to forgive our leaders. These are often symptoms of an unwillingness to trust in the will of God and in the sufficient in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ the good shepherd. But faith, saving faith, as the Bible understands it, faith submits to what God does through servant-minded leaders. You're not submitting to a person, you're submitting to Christ who has called that person. Faith submits to what God is doing through servant-minded leaders. Look, Peter, Peter who had those wise words to say to the church, Uh, When he was a younger man, Peter had to learn the lesson that saving faith submits to a servant, not to a tyrant. Saving faith, because we don't like to submit. Saving faith submits not to a tyrant, but to a servant. During that last supper of Jesus' life before he was betrayed and executed. During that last supper, he... He did something amazing that a rabbi would not do. He, he took off his outer garments and he wrapped them around his waist like a servant would, like a towel. And, and he just began to serve his pupils. The men that would, the 12 guys that would change the world. Jesus, the son of God, just put a robe around his waist and he just started washing their feet. And that was scandalous. That was awkward. And, and Peter, the big mouth, of course, uh, the existentialist. Uh, Peter basically says, no, Lord, you're, you're not going to do this, Lord. You shall never wash my feet. Now, Peter's saying, no way, no way we're going to serve you. You're not going to serve us, not our Lord, not our Messiah, not our King. And Jesus said something that was gentle and scathing at the same time. Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And the translation of that for you and I is this. You receive God's salvation and forgiveness and transformation and everlasting life by letting Jesus serve you. Until you submit to the loving, sacrificial service of Jesus, you cannot receive salvation. That's an interesting way of looking at saving faith. Saving faith submits to a loving, sacrificial servant, not a domineering, manipulative Lord but a sacrificial Lord. So the good shepherd still serves us as we submit to one another as his under shepherds. Jesus still serves you like he served his apostles. Like, you know, Jesus is washing our feet as he works in grace and power through the people that he entrusts with authority to shepherd and serve you well. So, so when you're submitting to your leaders in the church, you're ultimately, as long as they are faithful, you're submitting to the Lord Jesus as he works through them. So the mark of a maturing leader is self-sacrifice. If you have to start anywhere, you've got to start there. That's where it starts. Now, if you can observe that, If you can observe in people past transformation and if you can anticipate future transformation, then listen. Trust God to work in them. Trust God to work through them as servant leaders to transform you. The key is he is transforming people who will serve us sacrificially so that we experience the same transformation. And that is what we're going to take from the story of Judah. Let's pray. Father, we we're amazed again and again, we shouldn't be surprised, but nonetheless, we are amazed at how you take wretches like Judah and transform them into redemptive people. Uh, Father, we ask for the same transformation in our lives. Uh, Lord, I, I confess, just like the Apostle Paul did, that I am the chief of sinners. Uh, and, And, Father, if you can take somebody like me and use me for good purposes, I am convinced that there's not a person in this room that is beyond your grace and your care for transformation that will heal and bless and serve the needs of the people around them. Whether leaders or followers, I know, Father, that you desire to see every soul in this room leverage his or her strengths for the benefit of others. And I pray in Christ that that would be a reality. And I pray that Deeper in Church would have that reputation that we leverage our strengths for the good of Westminster and our world and our neighbors. In the name of our Savior, the Good Shepherd. Amen.